This is the word of the Lord for this morning. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's our verse. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. If you have your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where you're going to need to be. And as you're grabbing your Bibles, let me introduce myself to the live streamers. Welcome. Glad you're here. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church. And if you're new with us here in the building today, I want to say welcome. And I want to invite you, if you're new and or kind of a slacker, right? Some of you guys are slackers, just slightly. We love you, okay? That's why we do something called Doxa DNA every single month. It's for the new people and the slackers, okay? And the slackers got to come in Charlie Brown style on Thursday, all right? Six o'clock, we buy you dinner, you come eat with me and other staff people, get to know the mission, vision, values of our church. So if that's not on your calendar and no, you can't double dip, some of you are like, hey, it's Dos Coyotes, it's actually pretty good. No, you can't come back, okay? But get your friends to come that are new to the church, come hang out with us on Thursday night at 6 p.m. If you're new, it's a great way to get connected. Just come hear about the church. We would love to have you. You can sign up on the website. You can sign up on the Doxa app. Lots of great ways to do that. Great, great way to get connected this week, okay? So that's Thursday, 6 p.m. As we get into God's word, let me just say, uh, thankful for it being Veterans Day today. Thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy and the just sweet privilege it is to preach God's word, knowing that certain rights are upheld in our country, of which I'm grateful for those who have defended those rights. And we get to come to God's word. And so I think it's only fair that an appropriate measure to that, I preach with boldness, the word of God, because we can receive that word with boldness, because we can hear that word with boldness, and um, we're just privileged, guys, to live where we live and to be able to uh, hear God's word in an open setting like this with with this many people. It's such a, uh, a blessing. This is the church gathered together, and we're grateful for that. So that being said, let's jump in here. Uh, The title of the message this morning is A Must for Men. A must, this is a must for men. Some of you haven't been here, and I feel like every once in a while when we're going through a book, it's important to kind of give you a context to remind you where we are and what's going on in the text, because it's going to help us understand it in its proper context. So let me just take you back. If you haven't been with us, we've been going verse by verse through 1 Timothy. In chapter 1, Paul is addressing the root of false teaching that's going on in the church. 
And the false teaching was so bad, he actually ended up leaving Timothy, one of his faithful servants, a 35-year-old pastor Timothy, at the church at Ephesus to address this pretty significant gospel issue, okay? Because what was going on, evidently, was that the Ephesian, a, a subset of the teachers, of the pastor-elder teachers in the Ephesian church were using the Bible unbiblically. Do you remember how we've been talking about that? Just because someone uses the Bible doesn't mean they're using it biblically, okay? It's sad that we even have to say that these days, but yet that's where we find ourselves now, just as much as they found themselves in that context back then. And they were using the Bible unbiblically in such a way that they were creating a very different view of salvation. That in a sense, what their message was preaching was that salvation was limited to a select few uber self-righteous people, the holier-than-thous, okay, who were able to be holier-than-thou because they twisted the scriptures into a means of earning their own salvation instead of a mirror for sinners showing their need for a savior, they missed the whole point that the law is given in the Old Testament to show us, all of us are sinners according to the standards of God's word. And the law is meant to show us that we are so that we would reach out for a savior. See, in their complex, you didn't need to reach out for a savior. You could save yourself. But when you use the law biblically, when you use the Old Testament biblically, it shows you who you are as if you were looking at yourself in a mirror and according to God's standard, you would see how far you fall short and it would lead you to realizing you can't earn your own salvation from sin. You can't deliver yourself. You need a savior. And then you hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom we are a part, and of whom Paul himself says, the writer of this letter, he is the foremost. So everyone in the room, so far as they can acknowledge they are a sinner, is in the standing or the opportunity or within the realm of great hope today, salvation from sin and reconciliation with God. But you miss that. You miss that salvation that God came to offer by grace alone. It's a gift given by God. Through faith alone, you trust in the personal work of Jesus. In Christ alone, Jesus Christ alone. You miss that if you think salvation is for a select few that are super self-righteous because they were able to use the Bible to make themselves feel better about themselves. And so you come to chapter 2, and what happens with chapter 2, if chapter 1 is the root of false teaching, chapter 2, Paul deals with the fruit of false teaching, okay? And we saw that last week in the setup of the, hey, we got to offer all kinds of prayers to all kinds of people. Why? Because there was a salvific exclusivism going on. Salvific salvation was only offered to a select few. And he's like, no, no, no. If you understand the gospel, you understand Jesus Christ was given as a ransom for all, all kinds of people. So guess what? We need to be praying for all kinds of people. And using that strand of prayer, he connects this one verse today. Now you say, why one verse today? And this is why. It is a transitional verse for us. If chapter one is the root of false teaching, chapter two is the fruit of false teaching, what you find about false teaching often is that false teaching has many different flavors. It shows up in many different ways. What you'll find when false teaching is in a church is that it manifests itself in different ways to different kinds of people with different roles and different responsibilities. You'll find that false teaching manifests itself differently for men than it does for women. 
And Paul's going to address that. And of course, we all know, and maybe some of you thought this was the week I'm going to address the women. That, that's going to be next week. So if you came early, I'm sorry, you just have to come twice. All right? We're going to get there, but not before we deal with the men. Okay? The men come first. There is a product of false teaching that was affecting the men in a significant way, and he addresses them first. And then there was a fruit that came in the false teaching that the women were expressing, and he addresses that next week. And so we see these various manifestations of the false teaching, and, and so we come to the men today. And what I want to say as well as is, is this. Um, Though the, the issue that Paul is addressing is a specific circumstance in the church at Ephesus, what I believe Paul is giving us this week and next week, and frankly in subsequent weeks, is that Paul, through a specific circumstance to the church at Ephesus, was providing us with a universally, universally applicable principle to the church at large. In other words, one of the ways, and, and see this week's not controversial, it's next week that's controversial, but next week's not more difficult to understand than this week. We just don't like what next week says. What I'm trying to tell you is that just because Paul's addressing a specific circumstance in the Ephesian church, he's wanting to give the church at large a universally applicable principle that this is how it ought to be in the church. And I'm going to begin to make my defense today because I know next week I'm up for it, right? I know you're going to come and wonder if I really went to seminary or not. And trust me, I am so dialed and ready to go. Okay, but men today, men today. So here it is, big idea, a must for men in the church. Three questions we're going to ask to get to the bottom of what Paul is asking of the men. First question, what must men do? Second question, where must men pray? Third question, how must men pray? You don't need to write them all down now. They'll come up on the screen as we go. First question, how Excuse me, what must men do? Real simple, men must pray. If you are male, you must pray. I say must because he says I, what's the language? I desire, okay? Now when you read that in English, you might be reading that like uh, it'd be nice if. If you're kind of into that thing, consider praying. You know, if you want something to kind of add to a New Year's resolution list in, you know, November, because you're kind of one of those go-getters, little type A, getting in November, you know what, 2022, I think it's going to be a year, I, I try to pray a little bit. Now, that, that's not at all what's going on here, although I desire could sound like it was kind of a wish for Paul, like, hey, I hope you kind of think about that. But you see, you have to understand where it's coming from. It's coming on the back of verse 7, where Paul is essentially talking about his apostolic authority in verse 7. And the way he's leveraging this verb, it's, it's a different verb than fellow, which is the normal kind of I wish or I will. It's a different verb that's essentially like saying, I demand or I command. Men, you're being demanded by Paul under his apostolic authority to pray. Now, before we go any step further into the specific context of what Paul is addressing, we need to address this broader issue, which is that men don't pray. At least not in my estimation. They don't pray like they ought to pray. And, and, and so you could ask the question, why? And, and, and I love this because this is one of my favorite parts about speaking to men. Men are up for a challenge. Men are up to be challenged. Men are up for 
it to kind of be straight between the eyes. Here's how it goes. Here's how it's to look. Here's what you need to do. In fact, some of the best ministry that I've done with men has happened when you're just straight up like, whoa, almost knocks the wind out of the guy as they're receiving the word. But by God's grace, those who respond end up responding in a radical way that helps them to mature and to grow in the faith. And so I kind of want to take the same approach here and just hope that by not sugarcoating it, by telling it to you guys straight, that you will, by God's grace, rise up and respond to what Paul is calling you to do. And so you could think about a lot of reasons why men don't pray, and we're going to talk about a few of those, but can I tell you what I think is at the very bottom of why men don't pray? We don't know God enough. Like, I know you think you know God, but if you don't pray, you don't know God like you should. Let me add to that that I, I think it's because you don't know the gospel. Because if you knew the gospel like we should know the gospel, you would hunger and thirst after and delight in and absolutely see as the pinnacle of your day the time you spend with the Lord. In fact, it wouldn't just be that you'd be praying one time a day, but like Paul, you would pray without ceasing. It would be the very air that you breathe. I think the fact is for men that he occupies too little of our thoughts, he captivates too little of our hearts, and he remains too low on our priority list. And men who pray, pray because they know God. And it's not like you have to be 65 years old. I'm not talking about some sort of maturity of walking in the faith for 35 years. In fact, I'll give you an example. If you know Robert Murray McChain, anyone know that guy? Scottish minister uh, in the 1800s, died right under 30 years old, if I'm not mistaken, 29-ish. I mean, that guy wrote some stuff that was just straight fire. Like, how did this come out of a 29-year-old? It puts all of us to shame. By the way, when I read old books of dead guys, you realize just what a wimp we are in our culture. It's like stunning. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do my one sermon this week. Whitfield's on 16 a week, you know? You're like, man, this is crazy. And here's what Robert Murray McChain said, and I'm telling you, anything you read of him is just straight gold, and he was probably writing this in his 20s. He said, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. J.I. Packer said this, quote, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Many errors come under this basic banner of not knowing God well enough. That's what I'm saying is at the very, very tippy top. You go, that's not true. Well, let's talk about it for a little bit. How about one of the major excuses for why we don't pray is the really bad sovereignty argument. You've heard it, right? Well, if God's sovereign, why would I pray about anything? Um, well, for a couple reasons. Number one, in God's sovereignty, he uses means. He uses you to pray to accomplish his purposes, to welcome us into the beauty of participating in the unfolding revelation of his own will. God is inviting, if men who struggle for purpose want purpose, you are invited into the greatest purpose that you could spend yourself in, the purposes of God. Like we have this automaton excuse 
because we don't understand God, because we don't understand his sovereignty, and because we don't understand in his sovereignty, God uses means. Or, or we'll think about it like this, man. You, you, you and I meant more, it's, it's un, prayer is unproductive. We're meant to get results. We go to work to get things done, to get paid, to put food on the table. We got to go do the work. Man, just leave prayer to the wives. That's why they call it mops, not dops. You know what I'm saying? That's what wives do. Moms in prayer, of prayer. No such thing as dops. Because there's almost this expectation that dudes don't pray, right? I'll leave that to the women. That's what the women do. We're going to go be productive. You guys do mops. We'll go be productive. D.A. Carson said it really well, and I think this applies extremely well to guys, although some more than others, guys, listen to this. He says, we are better at organizing than agonizing. Although I would beg to differ on the organizing. Some of us just go ahead and whisper to your wife, thank you. He says, we are better at organizing than we are at agonizing. We are better at administering than we are at interceding. He says, we're better at entertainment than we are at worship. That's for sure true. He says, we're better if, if you get someone that's relatively um, spiritually capable. He says, um, those men are better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration. God help us not be a church that has theological precision without spiritual adoration. It's for sure a temptation. You could have another means of talking about it. Well, if it's not a theological thing, maybe your thing is like, I just don't know how to. And I would say, listen, if you don't know how to, <laughs> I know you can learn to pray. The disciples wanted to know how to pray and Jesus taught them how to pray. If you want to apply yourself, you can learn how to pray. In fact, if you want practice, we do it every single month. And I will tell you what, there's definitely some more chairs open. Just to draft off someone else's prayer life. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying when I say drafting off of? It's like when you run behind someone who blocks the wind so you don't have to run against the resistance as much. Come and get some of this from other men who are committed to praying. Ian Bounds, he's worth reading on prayer and almost everything he does on prayer. He says, prayer is the easiest and the hardest of all things. It's the simplest and the sublimest. It's the weakest and yet most powerful. This is how prayer is. And we struggle with it for a number of different reasons. And I almost wonder if it's not the issue of I don't know how to pray, but rather you struggle from a number of different temptations, men, like too many distractions, which has you on the sidelines and not in the midst of the battle, which has you like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane sleeping instead of praying for the Lord and with the Lord. For you, maybe the issue is that it's not really that you don't know how to pray, it's that you're too simplistic in your prayers, so all you do, all you think prayer is, is take your laundry list, right, just ask, 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 and ask, and no concept of abiding in the Lord at all. It's almost entirely detached from a relationship, and you're like, oh, I just don't know why you would ever spend more time in prayer. Well, it's because prayer is more than asking. Or maybe you would say something like, um, you know, well, I, I don't know. I, I spend most of my time praying for health and happiness and healing. 
for my physical ailments and my knee and my back and my shoulder. And, and, and I don't want to say you shouldn't be praying about that. I just would encourage you to maybe check and see when did Paul ever pray about his knee? And again, I'm not saying you can't pray about your knee. I'm saying pray for all of it, for the record. I'm just saying, is there a way in which our hearts, our prayer lives are a reflection of our hearts? Where are our prayers like Paul's prayers? Instead of health and happiness, what about a deeper knowledge of Jesus? What about God caused me to know the heights and depths and width and breadth of the love of God? God, give me a joyful delight in suffering for your name. Let it be to me that I am counted worthy to suffer for you when it hurts. God, give me an enduring boldness to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Give me a deeper hunger for your glory, for that alone is which I, what I live for. Maybe we're bored with prayer because our prayer lives are boring. There's nothing boring about God. There's nothing boring about what he's doing. And you say, well, why are you even saying all this? I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this stuff because, listen, it has to start with your praying at all. Like, if we are in the broadest sense to be faithful to what Paul is saying here, you have to be praying. No personal prayer life and you don't even make it into the context of Paul's concern. Does that make sense? Like, where do we even go from here? If you don't have a personal prayer life, nothing in the concern Paul's going to address even applies. So it starts there. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, man. That's not how we do it. We grow in our delight in God. And as we pursue and seek after and hunger for God, that hunger will well up in a constant desire for communication to the Lord. Second thing, where must men pray? Where must men pray? In the public gathering. In the public gathering. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. In every place. I, I want to make a defense here that when he says in every place, he is talking about the public gathering of the church. And I want to make a defense today because I probably won't have enough time to make a defense next week for it, but I'm going to rest on this defense to stand for my next week's defense because one of the things that people try to do is take 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15 for the women out of the context of the public gathering. I'm trying to keep it right in the public context of the public gathering, okay? Here's why. Uh, in the majority of Paul's uses of the phrase in every place, he is referring to every place where the church gathers for worship like in 1 Corinthians 1-2. What I'm suggesting is, when Paul says in every place, he is talking about it like he is in 1 Corinthians 1-2. In every place where the church gathers, all churches everywhere, not just those in Ephesus, where they gather. If they gather in the home, that's a place. They gather in the portico, that's a place. So when he says every place, he's going, listen, the church gathers in different places. It depends on the situation. But he's not talking about every place, literally every place, although can men pray in every place? Sure, that's not the point of what he's talking about, but it's not like you're limited to praying in the church. We know that, right? 
He's got a specific context to this, and we're going to see as we continue to go down here, but this phrase is most likely meaning the gathering of God's people. Add to that a couple other things that I think makes the defense even stronger. We're talking about prayer. Where do you pray? Well, sure, you pray all the time, but you should pray in the public gathering of the saints. If you go on to verses 11 and 12 and you deal with the issue that Paul is going to address with the women, you have teaching involved. Where does prayer and teaching take place? Man, maybe we can't even answer that question anymore because the church is so confused about what we're supposed to do on a Sunday, but let me let you in on it. Prayer and teaching is what the church gathers to do. And then if you're kind of confused beyond that, you take it in the bigger context of 1 Timothy 3, what's he really talking about? Well, ultimately, Paul wrote the letter. Just go to the next chapter and see in verses 14 and 15 that what he's addressing really is how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's not unclear. For some of you, you're like, man, he's making an intense point. You'll see why it matters next week. This is where people will go all wonky. Isn't it funny how um, passages become really, really hard to understand when we don't like what they say? <laughs> it's amazing how much we can confuse ourselves. And if you just go back and read it on your own under the you know, um, help of the Holy Spirit and, and in context with God's people are trying to just interpret it faithfully as it lies, it's not hard. But he says this, and he says, I want men in every place, in the place where the church gathers, I want the men, he's specifically addressing the men. This is what men are to do with their role. Men are to lead in the prayers in the public gathering, because listen to me, God's pattern for the life of the church is that men are those who lead in public worship. This isn't even Paul's point, though. I want you to understand this is Paul's implication. He's not even actually addressing that men aren't doing it in the church. He's assuming they are because that's what their responsibility was. The issue is their attitude, by the way. That's the whole point of verse 8. We're going to get there. But he's simply giving us an implication that this is what happens in the church. Men lead in public worship. Now, let's just be careful to make sure this doesn't say what it doesn't say. And what it doesn't say is that women can't pray in church. Okay? He's going to be really specific here with what he wants us to understand. There are other passages that are clear in the corporate context of God's people that women do pray and, and, and are called to pray. So it's not that women can't pray, but rather men are supposed to pray. And the reason why we know this isn't saying women can't pray outside of the fact that he addresses women in the next verse is the fact that he's not even addressing really men's prayer lives. He's addressing their attitude when they come to prayer. Of which their responsibility was to lead in the corporate gathering. And so really what it is, is the corporate gathering was just the place that the problem was exposed amongst the men that they had as a result of the false teaching. Does that make sense? It just, that's where it surfaced. That's where it came up. And so Paul's going to give specific address, uh, uh, instructions to women in the following verses. He gives a specific instruction to men here. And the specific instruction ultimately is that prayer wasn't the issue. It was just the place of the problem. Specifically, the emphasis on verse 8 is what's coming. It's on men's attitude. Like I said, if you tie it in, it says, I desire then. When you see the word then, it also can be translated the word therefore. And when you see the word therefore, you always want to ask the question, what is therefore therefore? If you're seeing then, it's not as good of a saying. What is then therefore? It's just not as cool, but it's the same idea. 
And when you see that, you want to see it attached to what came before it. So what's the string that came before it? 2, 1, to 7. In 2, 1, to 7, here's what we found last week. Was prayer ultimately the issue? No. Salvific exclusivism was the issue. And the application was the church wasn't praying for everybody. They weren't praying for everybody to get saved. So the real problem was their view of salvific exclusivism. It conflicted, Paul said. Their theology that was manifest in their prayer lives conflicted with the fact that there is one God and one mediator who gave his life as a ransom for all, and all God's people said, amen. That's the issue. Oh, so application-wise, pray for everybody, right? The same thing's going on here. Prayer's not ultimately the issue. The issue is that there is a false teaching element that was manifesting itself in the role and responsibility of the men of the church, and it was seen in the corporate gathering, specifically in their prayer lives, that they were either struggling to pray because of their anger, but working through it in a disgruntled, lack of reconciliation kind of way amongst fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, or their anger was causing them not to pray at all. It's not entirely clear, but what we see is evidently because of the false teaching, which this is no surprise, the false teaching that produced speculation, right? A bunch of pontification. There's a bunch of guys who are kind of these holier than thou's using the Old Testament to defend how great they were and how they could stand before the Lord in their own righteousness. <laughs> and they were just battling over it. And so, so the issue isn't their prayer specifically. The issue is the attitude that they were attending the corporate gathering and their leadership of prayer with. They had these unhealthy controversies and cravings for discussion that was not helpful for Timothy 6.4 says. They had these speculations that are going on. And so he goes, listen, this is the fruit of bad theology, of a bad understanding of the gospel, and it just happens to be manifesting itself in their prayers. And so you all need to change the way you pray or lack thereof. So we have two things that are kind of built in. A, men must pray, and B, they must pray in the public gatherings, and that's kind of the implied need to get there to understand it. But here's the real emphasis. It's the third point. How must men pray? How must they pray? This is where it's essential. And again, if you want a short answer, because we want answers fast, I don't know if I should withhold them so that we stop doing this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. We can do both. We can go deep, and I can give you the answer. Here's the answer. How must men pray from holy lives and attitudes? The men who pray should be holy men. What's interesting is you follow this pattern, true gospel, false gospel, right? True gospel, false gospel. With the true gospel, what's the fruit that the true gospel produces? Love, joy, peace, patience, come on, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So then guess what? We're not surprised then when he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. See, if the true gospel produces a kind of fruit, guess what the false gospel produces? A kind of yucky fruit. Isn't that a good word, yucky? 
I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. That's just vocabulary right now, okay? Yucky fruit. And uh, you think anger and quarreling fits in? You think if the fruit of the Spirit is love, you think the fruit of the false gospel is anger? You think of one of the fruit or aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is, is peace, that one of the unfruits, we'll call it, is quarreling? It's interesting, isn't it? You can see the manifestation of the gospel that you believe by the life and the actions that you live in. So he says, I desire then that in every place, that's the public gathering, the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Is that like spirit fingers? Oh, oh I, I am praying. This is amazing. You didn't tell me it was all, is this the whole time? You know, go, know God better? I just do this. I don't even know if that's spirit fingers for the record. Is that it? Is that what he's saying? In every place? We know it's not, right? After that. I do it like that so that everyone knows, right? We can all be in together. No trick questions. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's not actually about their literal physical hands actually at all. You know what holy hands goes back to? It goes back to the Old Testament. It's hard for us to remember this though because uh, we have a posture when we pray. (laughs) It doesn't look like the Old Testament's posture which is not necessarily a bad thing. But what do we do when we pray? Okay, yep, we bow our heads. Right, Bob? We bow our heads and we close our eyes. Somebody's about to get saved, right? Just all I got to do is raise your hand. I thought that was funny. You don't get saved by raising your hand. But we pray, we bow our heads, we close our eyes. We do one more thing. And we address God like we're writing a letter, which honestly was really helpful for me at the beginning. That's how I learned, you know, to, to pray. You want to just, God, like it's personal, right? This is how we pray. Uh, the Jews didn't pray like that. <laughs> the Jews prayed most of the time standing. You see that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, but it's not that they didn't pray prostrate, not to get that mixed up with another word, um, Oh, that would go viral in this message. Um, or, or sometimes they would pray kneeling, but most of the time they would pray standing up. And they would um, pray, and they would have their arms up, and they would lift up their hands to the Lord. This is how they would pray. And it, it, there's examples of it, like in 1 Kings 8, we, there's examples really throughout. Um, Solomon stood before the altar in the presence of the assembly and spread out his hands toward heaven, 1 Kings 8. Nehemiah 8 says that Ezra blessed the Lord and people responded, amen, lifting up their hands. They would actually lift up their hands so their palms were up. You know that posture of receiving from the Lord? Their palms were up and it, was, it meant something to them. Psalm 63, verse 4 says, I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. But see, what was underneath that posture was this idea that prayer required our hands to be ritually clean before the Lord. You don't come and live in all of your shadiness without repentance and then come with those dirty hands and try to pawn off that you're kind of religious. That's the whole point. And so 
The issue isn't ultimately the physical posture of the hands. The issue ultimately was the purity of one's heart and life. In fact, what you'll find interesting is the word holy here isn't the normal word that we would get for holy in the Bible. It's a different word that means the opposite of polluted. It means unpolluted or unstained by evil. So I desire that men would be holy men. And holy men ought to be leading in the worship gathering. And they ought to be leading in prayer in such a way that their hands, the symbol of what, 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 what do you spend most of your time using during your week? But these puppies, huh? And so he's saying in the totality of your life, you need to be a man who is in pursuit of, who is living a life of holiness, who has a heart before the Lord that's in pursuit of him. The point is whoever prays ought to have a holy life. Ian Bounds says it like this, prayer and a holy life are one. They mutually act and react and neither can survive alone. And so what he's saying is, listen, there is a responsibility in the church that men be holy men. That is one of the things I love about our church is that I believe God is drawing holy men to this place. And it's interesting because if you hold up the word of God and take it seriously, it's like moths to a flame. They go, that's where it is and that's where I'm going. And godly men who lead their homes know that's the most important thing. I, I can think of times when we were younger. It's so hard to start a youth ministry, right? Because youth ministry in our area is all about, well, it's fun, and every kid has to be there, and it's got to be contagious. But when you don't have a ministry, there's no one but the kid. And parents don't love that idea. But you know how the ministry got started? It was a few parents led by dads that were like, this is the place we need to be, and I will be your shepherd ultimately, and we will, yes, access the church, but the, the church is meant to come alongside the parents who are committed to this kind of shepherding, who see it as more than Wednesday night being that time when your kid gets all the God stuff. No, they saw it as a responsibility over their lives, and what that did is that kept those kids there that probably would have otherwise gone different places because they were getting good shepherding at home. They were willing to stick it out as the church got started, and now by God's grace, we see the fruit of those faithful parents at the beginning. The men who pray in church need to be holy men. I hope that doesn't lead you to think, well, that seems like a high standard. I guess I'll just kind of bow out of the aspirations. Don't, don't bow out of the aspirations. Don't cop out. Step up. Men, you want to be men, right? So step up and lead. Put your hand on your kids in the morning and pray for them. Put your hand on your wife and pray for her. Live a life of prayer because you know how dependent you are. See, the difference between a false gospel and the true gospel is the false gospel makes you rely on yourself. Self, 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 self. The true gospel makes you rely on God. How do you know you're living by the true gospel on a daily, day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis? I don't know. What are you depending on? What are you trusting in? You're trusting in yourself or you're trusting in the Lord? What's the ethos in your home? What's the framework for how you minister in life? How do you engage in small group? Is there just this predominant, let me pray for you? There needs to be that. And then he says this, here's the specific manifestation of the issue, that they needed to pray without anger 
or quarreling, which again is just is so interesting because it's tied so closely into this Ephesian error and all the issues produced by this false gospel, this non-productive speculation producing ungodly behavior and, and animosity towards one another. And so prayer is the stage for this sinful relational junk to come out. And so Paul says something profound here. He says that I want you in every place that the church gathers, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It's not to say you set aside your anger or your quarreling and you pray and then you get back to your fight later. That's not how it is. But rather, what I think Paul is implying is that reconciliation needs to precede worship, men. Reconciliation needs to precede worship in line with the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 5, 22 to 24. Have something against your brother, do you? Well, then leave your gift at the altar and go to him and be reconciled. Don't come bringing that anger into the prayer gatherings of the people of God. Hold on the prayer and go be reconciled to your brother. This is important. This is what gospel fruit looks like. Mark 11, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, do you have something against someone here? If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the heart of the people who pray. A false gospel leads to a lot of animosity. It leads to division. It leads to disruption. It leads to disputing. It leads to quarreling. Why? Because there's probably a sense of debate about who's better. <laughs> the gospel flattens that conversation, does it not? You are only made right with God in one way, and that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ and your faith in him alone. That's right. His standing is your standing. God treats Jesus as if he lived your life, and he treats you as if you lived Jesus' life by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's a very different reality, and it is to say that the gospel, since the gospel, can reconcile a holy, perfect, sinless God to depraved, vile, and dead men and women like ourselves in the gospel has more than enough power and grace to reconcile one man to another. And isn't that a message that we've needed over the last two years? See, false gospels create division where you, can't, you don't think that the gospel actually has power to reconcile men to one another if they're offenses or they're perceived offenses or whatever it may be, the bottom line is the gospel has more than enough power to reconcile one man to another. Men, we're all fired up about battle. We're all fired up about warfare. This is where we take up our battle. We learn to pray. We stop with the excuses. We lay those down. We loved walkie-talkies as a kid. We pick up the heavenly one now. We engage in the battle. You're like, I don't know how. Listen, every second Sunday we pray. Come tonight and pray. Come and lead in praying. I'm telling you, it is an encouragement to the body. Second Sunday is not meant to be optional. It's meant to be the gathering of the saints. 
So come and pray with holy hands in love and at peace with others. Why? Not because you just are staying away from every battle. Sometimes this happens in the church. You're like, I love this church. I love this church. One relational issue. I'm out of here. That's how we live in the world. You, you all bounce around so much. Stay somewhere so that you have long enough to get in a fight with somebody. <laughs> I'm serious. And then see the gospel. Do its work in that relationship. You're getting shortchanged and you're blaming it on your church baggage because you're not seeing the gospel. The gospel reconciles sinners. If God can be reconciled to you, no one's got a problem so big in comparison to what yours was before God that you can't forgive that person. So stick around for a little bit, won't you? And men, we must lead in this. Clear? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you. We're coming to wage war tonight, Lord. We know that the nations need Jesus. We know that people in our communities need Jesus. We know that we need Jesus. God, would you cause the men in our church to be leaders? Would you cause them to step up to want to seek after you and hunger after you? It isn't some force, okay, I got to start praying. It's a delight. It's the expression you've spoken to us, Lord. You've revealed yourself. Now go and work in power in our lives. We respond to your word. We see it. We want to live in light of it. We know we can't do it on our own. We know we can't do it in our own strength, so God, help us. God, there's a battle, and you've called men to the front lines to lead in that battle, to pray, to use the objects and the weapons of our warfare that are heavenly, not fleshly. God, make that true of us. May we sing and testify to that great truth that when we fight, we will fight the battle in prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.